Talk features thought leadership interviews with bank and credit union executives. If you are the CEO or would like to be an executive one day, this is the podcast for you. Learn something new in each episode to improve the performance at your financial institution. And now, here's our host, Charlie Kelly. Hi, and welcome to Bank Talk. I'm Charlie Kelly, your host. And today we're talking mergers, acquisitions, and valuations, bank valuations, and just you know what's going on with them in 2020 versus where we were at the same time in 2019. Uh, today we've got with us uh, Pete Wilder from Godfrey and Khan, and uh, Pete's got quite a bit of insight into this topic. So what we decided to do was to split this uh, interview into two episodes, two podcast episodes, just to make sure we got through all the material and you know didn't lose our audience amongst it. So let's get started. Okay, uh, welcome back to Bank Talk. Uh, today I have with me uh, Pete Wilder. Uh, Pete's an attorney with uh, the Banking and Financial Institutions Practice Group at uh, the law firm of uh, Godfrey & Kahn. Pete, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Charlie. So your firm um, concentrates on mergers and acquisitions, securities, regulatory, corporate counsel, that type of thing, I, I would assume, Pete. Is that is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You and I were spent a little bit of time around this thing called your family owned uh, bank specialty practice. Tell, tell me a little bit about that, because I think that's pretty relevant to our listeners, just the way you think about a community bank and, and ownership within. Yeah, you, you bet. I uh, appreciate that. The, the short answer really to that is, I think, through the years, we've been fortunate enough to work with a, a lot of banks. That's what that's all I do. Our my practice is focused on banks and mostly community banks. And what we found is there's a lot of family-owned banks out there, very closely held banks. In fact, in a lot of states, especially in the Midwest, you know, up to like you know 20, 30 percent of the bank charters in a particular state will be family-owned in some way. Oftentimes, when you go to industry-type seminars, you know, read trade publications. There's not a ton of focus on sort of that family aspect. It really is a family investment and the driver or the primary source of the family's wealth. A lot of the discussion on the legal side are things like, you know, fiduciary duties and what do you do for your shareholders, et cetera. Well, what if you are your shareholders? I mean, it's just just sort of you. We ran into a lot of situations where you know, the family has their own, you know, maybe local council doing estate planning and tax work for them. And then the bank's got sort of the, the bank lawyer. Neither of those two lawyers are talking to each other and really they're one and the same. You got to have a discussion going on between, uh, you know, for, with respect to the family's personal situation, their wealth, tax, estate planning, and what their ultimate goal is for the bank. You guys, that local lawyer often doesn't understand um, the unique aspects of bank holding company stock and some of the things the family might need to do as it's doing some of its planning. And on the other side, you know, the bank regulatory lawyer doesn't know what the family ultimately wants and what their goals are. Um, so we're, we're trying to marry the two together and do a better job of addressing that for those banks out there that really are family owned. And this truly is, you know, a, a family business, not just a community bank. Yeah, that's a great perspective because I think, you know, we run into the same thing. You know, the CEO running the place might not necessarily be a family member, but Generally speaking, at some point in the family's history, one of the CEOs was. <laughs> right? so, exactly right. right. That's how exactly we got started. Right. Well, okay. So today I wanted to spend a little bit of time with you, Pete, and just talk about what's going on in the industry 
related to deal activity, maybe a little bit around valuation. Um, but why don't we start with deal activity, right? We've had a year of COVID and, uh, you know, naturally, I think that's probably going to affect, you know, just how much activity is going on in the industry. But tell me, you know, can you give me a comparison of what's going on from a, you know, merger, a bank merger and acquisition perspective, you know, from 2019 to, to do a, a tale of two years is, I think, the short answer, Charlie, to this, which I think a lot of people probably um, would expect. But I'll, I'll give you um, maybe a little bit of insight into the degree of how different things are this year than, than last year and the last few years. I mean, if you look back, really the last three years, if you look at back at 2017, 2018, and 2019, they all looked pretty similar when it came when it comes to deal volume. We were announcing nationwide about 250 to 260 mergers per year for those three years. So that's you know that's 750 bank charters plus um, that sort of were going away over that that three year period. What's amazing is how consistent that was. I mean, it was almost we had almost the exact same number of bank merger announcements um, in 2017, 18, and 19. Like I said, 250 to 260. What that means is the rate of consolidation was going up because each year that passed when we sold 250 banks, we had 250 less banks. And yet the next year we had the same number of deals being announced. So we were seeing this acceleration in consolidation, to be honest. Um, and there weren't enough de novos, obviously, to replace those that were being being sold. What was interesting was, and we, we were a Milwaukee-based uh, law firm. We do Primarily, our clients are in the Midwest here, so that's what we track, and that's where you know most of the better, the most bank charters in the country are, and so the most deal activity you know tends to be in the Midwest. Um, so it's kind of a bellwether for what's going on nationwide. Uh, but what was interesting is towards the, the end of 2019, what we were seeing is if you looked at the trend line, you know there was actually a decline in activity. There was this big boom at the beginning of 2019, and then if you looked over you know through December of 2019, you saw this downward trend. So our prediction for 2020, before all this COVID stuff happened and everything that's going on, the craziness was that 2020 was going to be kind of a cooling off year. After three really active years in the M&A space, we were still going to have plenty of activity in 2020, but it was going to cool down. And in fact, that happened in, in sort of January and February. You saw deal activity was sort of start continuing to trend down a little bit. And then March hit with COVID um, in April. And I mean, it went from a slow decline to an absolute cliff. It all stopped, you know, period, um, to the point where I think even in like April or May it was, there were zero deals announced in the entire United States when, you know, again, in recent years, we've been seeing 20 to 25 deal announcements per month. Um, it went to z literally zero. Um, you know, why did that happen? I don't, I don't think it's a mystery. Um, you know, nobody knew what they were dealing with. You've got this pandemic, you had shutdowns, you know, what's the credit portfolio going to start looking like? Then you have stimulus and you have work from home. There were just other distractions that, that there were, you know, if there were discussions going on about a deal, they ended because there were frankly more important priorities um, to sort of take care of yourself, you know, and your, your own bank before you started thinking about trying to acquire somebody else or sell, you know, that, that occurred. Um, you know, then you have, uh, you know, PPP that came around, you know, balance sheets swelled, tons of liquidity, got to figure out what to do with that. So all of these challenges started sort of compounding on one another. And we really had a drop off since then, since, you know, April, May, people got it a little bit more comfortable. We've seen a trickling of deal announcements um, coming out, even to the point where, you know, in October, we had 11. 
So we're, we're starting to get back to sort of a more, you know, we're starting to see some stuff happening. At the end of the day, you know, where we are now versus last year, to give your listeners sort of a, uh, just a, a frame of reference, you know, at the end of October last year, we had about 220 deals that had been announced. Um, same point this year, about 90. Um, so we're probably, you know, we're, we'll break the 100 deal marker this year. But when you compare that to 250 plus in the last few years, um, that'll give you a sense as to you know, how, the kind, the, the degree of decrease in MA activity that we've seen. So, so it's down by 50%. And I don't think that would be, you know, if you could look backwards with the, you know, the perfect scope, mm-hmm. probably wouldn't surprise you given everything that's, that's right. going on, yeah. I would imagine. Agreed. Tell me about valuations. So I want to spend a little bit of time about valuations and, you know, just get some of your expertise on, on what's going on in valuations over time and maybe, you know, the same period, right? Last, uh, last year at this time versus now, do you track that very closely or what types of, you know, could you give me a couple of thoughts on, on bank valuation in general? Yeah, we, we can, I can give you two, two things on that, Charlie. One is, you know, the data. And then the second is just sort of anecdotally, you know, what we're seeing and hearing. And I think, uh, which might be, might be interesting. So, you know, the, the data is, yeah, valuations are down. I, I, I very much dislike talking about deal values in terms of, you know, price to tangible book um, that can be extremely misleading. Even you know, price to earnings sometimes can be a little misleading, although that's a typically a better metric. But just to give you again a sense of the degree of for announced transactions where the pricing has been actually announced of so public company type deals uh, where the acquires public company. Last year about this time we were at you know 150, 160 times tangible book was the announced uh, the sort of the median announced valuation. You know, this year we've gone and, and through the same period this year, it's more like 130 times. Again, can be a little misleading um, because you're only getting a snapshot of the of the 100, you know, or the 90 deals that we've seen this year and the, you know, 220 we saw last year. You know, only a small segment of those um, are actually publicly announcing the pricing. You know, again, price the tangible book is not a, a particularly helpful metric um, oftentimes to be comparing apples to apples on. But the bottom line is, you know, valuations have clearly come down. Um, on top of that, we've done a lot. We've worked with valuation firms a lot this year, again, with our family-owned institutions, you know, valuation, third-party valuation firms for purposes of you know, valuing banks, valuing the bank stock to do some interfamily transfers Um transfer things into um, into trust vehicles and different things for estate and tax planning purposes. And some of the anecdotes we're hearing from them is, yeah, I mean, valuations are way down. I mean, just look, you know, all you have to do is look at what happened to bank stocks in like March and April. I mean, they just took a nosedive. A lot of the publicly traded bank holding company stocks were down 30, 40, 50%, um, you know, almost overnight. We've seen some recovery. In fact, just recently here when we had, you know, the Dow went up a thousand points the other day, you know, bank stocks were buoyed about, you know, 15 or 20 percent, uh, many of them. So they're, you know, they're kind of regaining here. Um, but, you know, that's that will give you an indication of sort of what's happening in valuations. Finally, what I'll say is um, every deal is different. I mean, we're involved in discussions where I, I liken it to if any of your listeners out there are farmers or do a lot of, you know, ag lending, you know, a lot of times it's, you know, two farmers who have land next to each other and one farmer decides to sell that, you know, to sell their farm, sell their land. And it hasn't come up, you know, their family's owned it for a hundred years. It's never going to come up for sale again. That, that farmer next door isn't going to let that farm go. They're going to pay whatever they got to pay to get it and drive the price up regardless of, you know, what's fair for that, 
for that farm ground sometimes. And I liken that same thing with community banks. You know, a lot of time, even though, you know, well, valuations are kind of maybe down or whatever, the reality is bank, you, even now in some of the discussions we're having, when, when a bank is up for sale and it's, it's the one, you know, that the neighboring bank, you know, has always been interested in, wants, you know, whatever it is, you know, on a deal by deal basis, there's reason to pay up. And so we're still seeing discussions um, you know, with with higher valuations than what I'm suggesting, and it's not 130 a book. That's a, again not a that helpful of a metric. You know, on a deal by deal basis, you know, we are seeing some you know really good, fair, attractive premiums. Let me throw a farmer analogy at you. I, I think you know, as I think about one bank acquiring another one, I, I think that, and keep me honest here because I could be wrong, that some of that is not exactly done in cash, right? Some of it is bank stock to bank stock. So, you know, using your farmer analogy, that would be, you know, the farmer next door is paying you in cows. And if the value of, you know, of cattle is down, right, then, then you're, you're, you know, you're, you're uh, selling something, but the, but the medium with which you're transacting the, the uh, running the transaction might not be worth what it, you know, what might have been before. Are most of these things done, you know, are they, are most of them done you know, as a cash deal or are they done, you know, is there some combination of that stock of the, of the uh, survivor. Good, good question. And first of all, being in Wisconsin, I am totally using your far, your your cow analogy. So, <laughs> so that that you can, you can't claim any copyright on that. I'm taking it and, and okay. running with it. So good, no, N- nicely yep, yep. done, Charlie. And, uh, <laughs> on the cow analogy, I love it. The uh, the answer is yes. I, I mean, some of these are stock deals. The, the reality is usually the stock transactions are the public companies who are offering their stock as part of the purchase price to, to the seller. You know, usually two privately held community banks, you know, unless it's kind of a merger of equal situation, usually you're not seeing stock as part of the consideration of the deal. Usually those sellers want cash or again, they want public company stock that they could liquidate if they want to out in the open market. They want the liquidity is what they're, mm, what they're yeah, going after. A- um, but your point is a really good one in that because bank stocks have taken this plunge, the currency value has has gone down. It's it's harder for those public companies to use their stock, sort of part of the purchase price, because they've got to offer more of it. It's more dilutive, and it makes the deal look worse. So what it does what it does do is level the playing field. And we saw this too back in I think it was the end of two thousand and eight when bank stocks started coming down a little bit. That it, it levels the playing field. I mean now when bank stocks are really high, the public companies, you know, they just have an advantage in the, and there might be a privately held bank that's going to use cash to try to win a deal you know, that the seller is auctioning off. And it just can't compete with the price that the public company can pay using its stock at this really high valuation. So when those stock prices come down, if there are deals that are out there that are, you know, that sellers are, you know, openly marketing to sell themselves, it levels the playing fields and gives those privately held community banks a little better shot to win the deal instead of just being kind of, you know, beat out by the you know, super high price public company stock that that's getting used against them. The, the purpose behind that or the, or the concept there would be if I'm selling my bank, I'm selling it, but I've almost got to take a look at what the other guy's stock is worth in order for me to really have a good understanding, you know, and, and some, some concept of whether it's going up or down, mm-hmm. because I'm likely not dropping that on the market right away to make it into cash. 
That's right. And it's another reason why in a deal like that, the seller wants to do, will want to do some reverse due diligence. Um, they'll, they'll actually do some due diligence on the buyer because you want to make sure that, you know, what are you getting? You're getting stock and you're sort of making an investment in the buyer at that point. And you want to do some due diligence to make sure you understand, you know, what you're getting and that it's a, you know, it's a good deal. So absolutely right. A great you know, point, Charlie. Okay. And so when, uh, let's just take two small community banks, one buying the other one, uh, in order to raise funds, the first one, well, you know, what are the options for the, for the acquirer? Yeah. Can, can yeah. You, good. Can you still thought on that? Great question. You know, traditionally there's, uh, there's a couple of ways you can do it. One is just cash on hand. You just got a lot of cash sitting around, um, depending on how big the acquisition is for the buyer. You, you may not have enough cash, um, on hand to be able to do something like that. I will say right now, with the absolute flood of liquidity into the uh, into the banking space, balance sheets are are flush with it. You know, a lot of folks have a lot of cash on hand right now, and balance sheets have swelled. And quite frankly, um, there's nowhere to go with it. That's one of the big challenges we have right now. Net interest margins are at absolute all time lows. You know, worse than it was back in '08 uh, in the Great Recession. You know, what do you do with it? So that that is one possibility. You got a bunch of cash. You know, you can on the balance sheet. You know, you can use it. The other way is you, know, you go get a bank stock loan. Um, you know, ultimately you finance a part of this. Um, that's very common that you go one of the you know uh, sort of a correspondent bank to get some financing at the holding company level that gets uh, used to you know fund the acquisition of the target. Or finally, and one of the sort of the big ticket uh, you know sales pitches that is that's going on out there right now is subordinated debt. Um, so for folks who aren't familiar, all all that is, you know, sub debt for short. Um, all that really means is it's a it's a um, a particular type of debt instrument. You as the buyer would issue to you know any number of investors, often through an investment banker who will help you place it. Um, sometimes not. A lot of times the investors in the sub debt are other community banks. You may have had a, a broker or somebody come and talk to you, investment banker, about buying sub debt that another bank issued. So you may see some of that. Uh, but the deal, you know, you issue sub debt, you know, you get it, uh, you know, maybe it's $10 million or whatever, you use that to fund the acquisition um, if you want to. That's a big deal right now that investment bankers are, um, and other consultants are sort of talking to banks about that, you know, there's some uncertainty in the market, you know, why not issue some sub debt? Coupons are at all time lows, you know, somewhere in the 4%, you know, 4 to 5% range that we're seeing. It's it's 10 year, you know, low coupon um, and it can't be cut off like a correspondent, you know, line of credit of some kind. It's 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 essentially it's got a specific capital treatment, um, not for banks under three billion. There's a lot of detail on that we won't get into, but it's got a specific capital treatment if it has certain types of features, um, which it will have if you issue it. It basically makes it ten year sort of permanent capital. It kind of can't be called um, or defaulted upon. Um, so you've got it there to protect you in case you know your loan portfolio has some deterioration and you need some extra capital. You've also got it there if you know if we get past all the credit, you know, potential credit issues, and you've got a chunk of capital sitting on your balance sheet to be able to do an acquisition or something else. That's one thing that um, we're seeing a lot of sub debt issuances right now, and that's one way to fund an acquisition too. Yeah, that's a great perspective. So, you know, without making this a podcast on sub debt, <laughs> I, I would think the risk there would be since the sub debt is generally issued at the holding company level. And supported by dividends from the banks. If let's say you have you use a subordinated debt, you bring one of the banks, you, you buy, you purchase a bank, you bring it in under the holding company as a, you know, uh, a child to the mother, right? 
if your banks stop performing or if you end up having loan problems or you can't pay a dividend up to the mothership, uh, that subordinated debt would become a problem or any debt at the holding company level. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you think about a, and again, I, I'm no expert. I'm, I'm, this is more a question than anything. But if you think about, uh, you know, four banks under a holding company, all of them are paying the, you know, paying off the holding company or, or you know, issue dividends up to the holding company. You know, there's a possibility that any one of them would have to stop paying a dividend. That would really be problematic for somebody holding subordinated debt at the at the HC level, right? Or you know, it, thinking, it, it, can, it can be. First of all, you never want to over leverage yourself. So that's that's sort of number one. And the Fed will prevent you from doing that when it comes time to you know review your application um, for the acquisition. But sub debt is sort of a unique animal. Uh, and I, I actually would encourage for your you know, your listeners if they have an even smaller bank, this is not a big bank thing. Um, this isn't like a, you gotta be, you know, 3 billion or more to, to do sub debt or, you know, whatever, even $200 million um, community banks. There, there are some of these banks that are doing this, um, you know, that we've you know seen work with, you know, et cetera, that are, that are looking at this and who've actually done these. So I, I would encourage you to educate your board on it or get educated if you're, if you're not. Um, but that's sort of the beauty of sub debt is that it's, you need to pay it back. There's no question. But the reason it gets sort of certain capital treatment um, from the Federal Reserve is because it is more like permanent capital. It's more like an equity investment. It, it has features like that, such that, you know, even if you can't pay the dividend, it's not like the bank's going under. So it's you, you, we can do a whole separate almost podcast, sure, and sub- sure. that, which I'll invite you <laughs> if you want to do, um, because it is a unique animal and such a hot topic right now. My, my, my big message to all of our clients has been get educated on it, you know, talk to the folks that understand this and are issuing it because it may not, it's not right for everybody, but, but you should be educated to make an educated decision on whether or not this makes sense for your bank, you know, or not. The good news is yeah, banks are really well capitalized right now. So we should, and are very well reserved as an industry. Um, so the hope is you don't need more capital, but um, some banks run pretty thin on capital and it would make sense to do some sub debt at the holding company and inject it down into the bank as some additional tier one capital at the bank level. And your perspective on it has been phenomenal because I, I don't know that uh, average banker, you know, sitting at their at their desk is thinking about it necessarily the same way you do. So I I, I really appreciate the perspective on it. Yeah, all. well, th- thanks for having me, Charlie. And uh, n- nothing else from my perspective. We're obviously happy to help. Um, find my contact information. I'm sure somewhere it's Godfrey and Khan is our firm uh, at uh, in in Milwaukee and. Um, yeah, Googling us there or otherwise my email is pwilder, P-W-I-L-D-E-R at G-K-L-A-W dot com. You'll find other stuff there. We write a thing called bank strategy briefing that's really just sort of, you know, idea generation for community bank executives that's on our site too. We do sort of an annual M&A prediction along with other things. We talk about consolidation in the industry and what the actual data is which uh, we've gotten a really nice response to. We have a lot of readers um, on it. So those might be good resources for folks. Um, and we're happy to share, you know, we're, um, we believe in car- good karma here. We're happy to just share things as favors to the extent that we can help. We really believe in community banking and, and, and want to see it. We want to see community bankers thrive. I appreciate your time, Pete. Happy to do it. Thank you, Thanks Charlie. Thanks for joining us. Take care. Okay, well, thank you for Pete. Uh, as you can tell, we've got a little more of this topic to talk about, which we will get on our next episode. Uh, so thank you for joining us today and keep on learning.
The discussion with Pete Wilder will continue in episode 11. Thank you for listening to Bank Talk Podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by Remedy Consulting. Check us out at remedyconsult.net or banktalkpodcast.com. Thank you, and we'll see you in episode 11.